Hey, this is Clark, and welcome back to the Paleo Hacks podcast. This week, we're talking about soy. The whole soy story, the whole story story, that's a tongue twister, with Kayla T. Daniel, uh, the naughty nutritionist here to talk about everything you need to know about soy. What are the myths? Is it safe? How much is safe? How do you consume it if you do choose to consume it? The whole nine. Paleohacks.com is the place to be. Um, for recipes, blogs, articles, everything over there, and our archives. Never miss an episode, go over there. If you want to get a hold of me, I am at Clark Dangerous with an OUS on social media. And that's pretty much all I got for announcements. Again, intriguing show, fascinating conversation with Kayla T. Daniel about soy. Without further ado, please enjoy my show with Kayla T. Daniel. Okay, you ready? I've got my soy-free dog here who seems to want to participate. So. He can participate if he likes. Well, more the merrier. <laughs> my next guest is the nutritional mythbuster, a.k.a. the naughty nutritionist, former vice president of the Weston A. Price Foundation. You may have seen her on Dr. Oz, NPR, Discovery Channel, and she's here today to talk about the whole soy story and how to practice safe soy. Dr. Kayla T. Daniel, thanks for coming on. It's a joy to be here. I'm really excited to talk about this one. Um, first, I want to get an introduction to the, the pooch right there. He's got to make an appearance. Well, this is Venus. She's the she and she's the soy-free dog, paleo dog here. <laughs> paleo soy-free dog, which is very uh, big, not to go too left field at first, but my girlfriend's friend's dogs switched to raw food and they had a lot of health problems and eye boogers and nasal congestion and when they switched to raw food all of that started going away so it must not be just a human thing as well that you know when dogs eat higher quality food they they have similar health conditions absolutely yeah um okay so i'm interested then uh can we practice safe soy? I love that expression. Um, <laughs> you're known as the soy lady, the, the naughty nutritionist. How did this become such a big passion of yours? Well, like a lot of people, 10, 15 years ago, I was reading headlines about the joy of soy and the soy of cooking and soy as the miracle food that could cure everything that ails us personally and also what ails the planet. And that was very seductive, very appealing. I mean, my feeling was if we could find a cheap, nutritious food that could do all that, I was all for it. But when I started researching it, I was finding evidence to the contrary. In fact, 70 years worth of strong evidence to the mm -hmm. contrary. Wow. So uh, you said 70 years? Yeah, the studies go way back. Okay. Um, and so you started researching all the studies and found that they said otherwise? Yeah, about a thousand studies probably, and it was quite a project going to the library and getting full text, and some of the really older ones uh, only available in libraries, not online at all, but oh, uh, some of those old researchers were good researchers, honest researchers, and nobody was paying them from the food industry. Hmm. And so you started pulling all the research, putting it together, and speaking out against the dangers of soy? 
Exactly. Now, I wasn't the only one. Many other uh, clinical nutritionists and alternative medical doctors have seen problems, too. People like Jonathan Wright and Dr. Russell Blaylock, uh, Dr. Doris Rapp. I mean, long list of people who we all love and respect who started seeing problems when people tried to get healthy, included more soy in their diet, and quite the reverse happened. So this was a time where soy was being... Uh, it was quite different than today. Today, people are, ca- are somewhat aware of uh, soy and maybe the negative implications it has, which we'll get into in the show. Um, but it's it's on the radar now. But back when you were doing this, I'm, I'm imagining it was different based on what it sounds like. It was an uphill battle to begin with, for sure. And now, because of the popularity of paleo diets, I think it's definitely on, as you put it, a lot of people's radar that soy is a problem. Uh, But there's many, many people who still think soy is a health food or think it's useful if it's organic and not GMO. So a lot of people are confused about that. They're thinking GMO is the problem, and as long as what they buy is organic, it's all good. But sadly, it's not. Hmm. And so how did all the research compound into the whole soy story and the the book you wrote and what was that build up there? Well, it was originally supposed to be a fairly simple project. I'd do some research. I'd bang out a quick book. But it became much more complicated, more studies, more complexity. Uh, it became a several-year project. It was, it was frankly, a nightmare pulling it all together. <laughs> and the final result, 400 pages. It's a big one. <laughs> yeah, and massive numbers of, of footnotes, like 45 pages worth of those in tiny print. So a lot of research went into it. It's kind of like uh, any construction project, they say, takes twice as long and costs twice as much i'm sure i'm sure that's what writing a book's like yeah they were emotional and physical costs for sure yeah and so you know when someone's picking up the whole soy story and they've heard the first bit of this call and they're like soy's wait soy's not a health food and speak to that person what are kind of your most uh the biggest reasons why soy should be avoided or isn't a health food what do you say to the person who's never heard any of them before Well, I like to be controversial in the very fact that the FDA has approved a soy prevents heart disease health claim would be a red flag to many health conscious people. I mean, we can't trust the FDA having to do with big farm or pharmaceutical drugs. So why should we we trust the FDA in terms of supporting a a product that that benefits big, big soy? Because it's a huge industry, billions of dollars a year industry. So that would be one thing. And some other things I would just point out is that that some of the common myths are that Asians eat lots of soy. All day long they're eating lots of soy, and because of that, Asians are much more healthy than we are. But that's a myth because, uh, first of all, all over Asia, and it's a huge continent, many different countries, many different lifestyles, etc. But wherever we travel to in Asia... 
they eat soy as a condiment in the diet, not as a staple food. And that's very different from what we're seeing with some, say, vegetarians in America where they've got a one-pound slab of tofu on their plate and they're drinking soy milk and so forth. Another issue is that that uh, many of the modern soy products were never traditionally used in Asia. Many of them came in after World War II. And oddly enough, soy milk is even a relatively recent invention. It was not used years ago traditionally. So it may not be the worst product out there by a long shot, but for many people, they're eating it a lot, you know, as a dairy replacement. And in quantity, that is definitely a problem. Yeah. And the traditional soy foods were ones that you would eat in small quantities, like natto. And that's definitely an acquired taste. It is a healthy food. It's full of vitamin K2 from the bacteria, not from the soy. And the natto is so stinky and it has such a vile texture. I mean, lots of people are fans of it. But in, in Japan, there's a special special room in a restaurant to eat it so that the other diners will not have to be subjected to the smell. <laughs> but it's a healthy soy food. It's a good old soy, I would like to say. So a majority, though, of the soy, what you're saying, is not the fermented uh, bacteria soy that's healthy it's the kind of problematic soy maybe that's in the u.s that we think the asians ate a lot of and uh there's still some kind of myths floating on around out there about how soy might be a health food but how your book and what you're talking about is kind of debunking some of those common myths out there Correct. Uh, it's it's jumbled together in the popular mind. Anything that's soy soy, it must have the health benefits, etc. So in Asia, some of the traditional things would be miso soup, which I think is wonderful. It's a wonderful way to start your day. Very very nourishing. And natto and tempeh, which is Indonesian, and people do not eat those things to excess. And a little tofu once in a while, not really a big deal. I would not call it a health food. But if you're just having a few cubes in the stir fry, a few cubes in your miso soup, not really a big deal. It's what we're eating most of the time that's a problem. And that's where we get into the modern uh, soy products that are being promoted so heavily. And they would include the things that came in after World War II, the processes that created things like uh, hydrolyzed soy protein, sometimes called hydrolyzed vegetable protein, or soy protein isolate, soy protein concentrate, textured vegetable protein, all of those things, the mysterious substances, and often the ones that are used to make fake burgers, fake meats, and for the people who want to be fake paleo, I guess that would would serve. Right, the meat replacement, the tofurkey. But you have to think, what does it take to turn a soybean into into meat? Yeah. And it's MSG and a whole lot of additives. Now, oddly enough, uh, tofurkey, which is something I really enjoy making fun of, the worst problem with tofurkey is not the soy or the tofu in it. It's the wheat gluten. So talk about something that can really destroy your gut. I mean, it's not just a little bit of gluten. Uh, it's a lot of gluten. Yes. Um, so with, you know, talking about how soy was a supplement or, or kind of more of a condiment in Asia, like you spoke about, and how we took that, ran with it, and made it kind of a staple, really a big part of our diets and the miracle food from 20 years ago, 
I guess the, the question is, why is that bad? Why is, what does soy do to us that's negative? Well, I think there's a basic idea that we all need to consider is that we tend to not get into trouble if we have a rich and varied diet. It's when we decide that one food or one supplement is a miracle substance, a silver bullet or something that's magic and eat it excessively. That's when we put ourselves at risk because some of those uh, substances do not turn out to be healthy. So if we have a little soy once in a while, if we're not allergic, probably not a big deal. Uh, not paleo, but you know most of us aren't perfect 100% of the time. So the problem really is eating it to excess and particularly the modern products which include a lot of MSG and additives and processing problems and it's not that they're adding MSG necessarily but part of the high temperature, high heat and chemical processes will create it as a byproduct. Okay. okay, so there's a big processing issue? There is with anything such as, you know, fake burgers and fake meatballs and fake hamburger crumbles that aren't really hamburger, they're soy crumbles. Yeah. So they are the biggest, biggest problem. And so what does soy do in our body that might not be very beneficial? How, what are the negative implications of eating it? Oh boy, let me describe the ways. Because <laughs> I know this is a big one. It's a big one. Um, in one sentence, it causes malnutrition, digestive distress, thyroid damage, immune system breakdown, attention deficit disorders. It's one of the top eight allergens, soon to be in the top four. Uh, it contributes to heart disease and cancer, the very diseases it's supposed to help. Uh, with thyroid damage being one of the one of the really big big things we see. Okay, and so there's a lot in there. There's a lot to unpack. I guess starting with um, – where do I want to start with? There's a lot in there. Um, I guess the hormonal implications of soy is, is a big one I see floating around the internet. A lot of people say it soy reduces testosterone levels, and some people have said that's debunked, that's a myth. Others say it's – you know, if you're a male or even if you're a female, you should never touch soy with a 10-foot pole because of the hormonal n negative implications. What's, uh, what's your take, Dr. Daniel? Well, thanks for mentioning that because I realized I left that out of my list of things and it's a huge one. So it uh, causes endocrine disruption in both men and women. And in plain English, that would be uh, havoc with your hormones. And soy contains plant estrogens called phytoestrogens or more technically isoflavins or genistein, datezine, etc. And they're not true uh, estrogens. They're not human estrogens or mammalian estrogens they're plant estrogens they're a little different but they're close enough so that they can fool the body and that's where they create their problems so they cause various problems including they fool the body into thinking it doesn't need to produce the real hormones or it can they can fill up the receptor sites so you don't get the benefit of the real hormones so in terms of girls and boys um all that estrogen is problematic in different ways. Now, the most vulnerable time is when a baby has been just born and during the first year of life. And that makes sense. Very small child, body and brain developing, very vulnerable. And eating nothing but soy formula if the parents are 
giving that baby soy formula, which I would absolutely advise against and which the Israeli health ministry has warned against. But anyway, what what develops um, with the little boys, this might seem hard to believe, but a baby boy in the first month after it's been born has as much testosterone as a grown man. And it's very important that that testosterone is made and it's being used because it's programming that little boy to go through puberty years later and become a man to become a father, all of those things. So estrogens in the wrong spot and interfering with testosterone production can be a huge problem. And we're seeing a delayed response. And the delayed response, of course, is what confuses people because it's not an immediate cause and effect. Like if somebody has a soy allergy and they eat some and they break out in hives, everybody knows that. It's immediate. But the little boy might not, the parents might not see problems. The pediatrician won't see problems until the boy is a teenager, perhaps. And then we have a little estrogenized boy who may be going through puberty uh, overweight. Now, to be totally clear, there's a lot of reasons kids are overweight today. So it's not the only demon in the environment. But uh, boys with breasts, estrogenized boys, and then all sorts of things, everything from the soy interfering with their uh, production of the quality and quantity of sperm. And the really unfortunate boys um, who've been on soy formula, their their, uh, reproductive organs do not develop to the full size. They remain extremely small like that of an infant in some Mm -hmm. worst case scenarios. Uh, so is there a lot of different people doing research out there on the effects of like formula, soy formula fed babies? Um, are there a lot of studies out there or is it still kind of emerging? There are some studies and they've been largely suppressed. Nobody talks about them. Say the New York Times will do an article about gynecomastia and how surgeons are doing a booming business in breast reduction surgery for young men. And they talk about various um, environmental estrogens and possibilities that are leading to that. But soy almost never gets into those articles. And we absolutely need to be careful about other environmental estrogens, things like BPA and plastics, the estrogens that we find, say, in the water supply from, say, birth control residue and hormone replacement therapy residue and, and other drugs. There's problems with chlorine and fluoride, and I mean, I could go on and on. We've got a toxic environment. But somebody who's going to be extremely vulnerable would be a baby given soy formula during that first year. Okay. And so to recap on how it affects uh, the baby, the soy has uh, phytoestrogen in the uh, plant estrogen, and so when we eat that, it mimics an estrogen receptor and combines to our estrogen receptors, therefore increasing the estrogen levels? Well, that's pretty much. Uh, it can increase them or, or it can interfere with them in various ways. And one of the problems is it's not a reliable process. And also people are getting different doses and the duration can vary. Say one baby might be on it for a few months you know, the baby might have started out breastfed and then, say, at the three-month point went on to soy formula. Um, that baby's getting a different dose than, say, another. You know, different levels of, you know, hungry babies versus ones that are less hungry. 
and then the plant estrogens will vary from soy crop to soy crop. So there's a lot of confounding factors that make this very hard to tease out completely. Yeah. But the basic thing, as as you were saying, it it they can get into the receptor sites so the real hormones can't get where they need to be to do what they need to do so you can develop your brain and body properly. Okay. So what about the person who's um, trying to lose weight? Is soy uh, something they should definitely avoid, or what are the implications of soy on weight gain? Well, the soy industry would like to, you to think that, that it's a good plan to include more soy in your diet. And they talk about how some of the products are low-fat. And, of course, there's all the protein shakes with uh, soy protein in there. So it's heavily recommended for, for weight loss. But the research actually establishes that it has a terrible de- detrimental effect on the thyroid, most often Um, manifesting as hypothyroidism or low thyroid with the effects of malaise, lethargy, fatigue, um, and loss of libido, loss of hair, some of those symptoms. But when your thyroid's down, you're more prone to gain weight. And we have 70 years worth of studies indicating that soy can damage the thyroid. Wow. Okay. So, and the thyroid, the lower thyroid... Uh, or hypothyroidism causes the weight gain. It it does, and um, there's many ways that soy can damage the thyroid. Uh, sometimes it initially stimulates it, uh, giving somebody a mild, say, hyperthyroidism, and initially they'll have more energy and feel good. But when you're whipping the thyroid like that for for more than a few days, it starts to get very tired out, and the person will lapse into the long term low thyroid. And sometimes people go back and forth. There's some very scary stories of people who've experienced thyroid storms and were rushed to the hospital and so forth. Wow. So soy is linked to all of those, plus the autoimmune forms like Hashimoto's and Graves. Okay. And then is it the inflammatory properties of soy or the hormonal aspect of soy? Or how is it really targeting, uh, causing kind of autoimmune diseases? Well, with the thyroid, um, soy interferes with the production of the enzyme thyroid peroxidase, and without that, we're not able to make T3 and T4 properly. So that would be an issue there in terms of the thyroid disease. Now, I don't have research on all the autoimmune disorders, some such as rheumatoid arthritis or scleroderma or lupus or MS and soy. I can't imagine that it would be helpful if it's damaging your thyroid and contributing to reproductive problems. It, it can't be good for the rest of your system. Yeah. So with uh, soy and consumption, you know, there's people out there who say, oh, I'm, I'm fine, Dr. Daniel. I don't need any soy. Um, you know, I don't eat tofu or edamame or even fermented stuff, but I bet a lot of it goes to livestock. Can you talk about soy production and especially in the United States? The biggest problem with soy production in the United States now is that 90% of it's GMO soy. And that's having devastating effects on on people and the planet both. So if you're insisting on eating soy because you like it or you don't believe me or whatever, at least please get the organic soy. And that will give you the best the best chance there. Now, in one of the arguments that we do hear a lot is that whether you're eating meat or whether you're eating soy directly, you're getting a lot of soy in your diet. 
And it's certainly true that livestock get soy in their feed, and that would include most organic um, uh, meats and, and poultry that you would find in the supermarket and farm, farm-raised fish, etc. They're given a diet that can be quite heavy in soy. But the interesting thing is, even though the animals are fed a lot of soy, the effect on people from it getting it indirectly is less serious than, than say, having soy every day in the form of soy milk and shakes and so forth. Okay. So the, uh, so the way that wheat has kind of replaced cheap carbohydrates, soy is kind of the cheap protein source, and a lot of it's being fed to livestock uh, because it's accessible and then when the animals eat it, we eat the animals and get some of it in our diet that way? Yeah, the uh, a lot of the very best research on soy was actually done by the USDA over many years and the intention was to solve some of the problems of uh, feeding soy to animals because the industry wanted to feed more soy to the animals without bad health effects on the animals. So the USDA did lots and lots of studies trying to figure out ways to solve the problem because this is what happens to the animals. Some of it they like. It damages the animal's thyroid so the animal gets fatter sooner. I mean, that's, that's good for business. But um, too much soy and the animal cannot reproduce or it dies prematurely, and that's a problem. Yeah. So they were working very hard to figure out ways to process the soybeans so that it could work better for, for farmers. Or I should, when I say farmers here, I'm talking, you know, the factory farmers. So with, uh, with soy, then, I heard that you're not supposed to eat it raw, that it's, it's poisonous if it's raw. Um, so when they're feeding it to the livestock or anything like that, are they cooking it or do they feed it to them raw or what's that process like? Oh, it's very definitely processed and heavily processed. Uh, the problem is no one has come up with a cheap, fast way to process that's perfect. So that's part of what the USDA was working on for years and years. For example, one of the problems they were confronting was the fact that soybeans naturally contain what are called trypsin inhibitors or protease inhibitors. And they make it hard to digest the protein. So that's a real problem. That's why a lot of people will experience digestive distress when they start including more soy in their diet. The problem with just heating or, or boiling the soybeans is that some of the soybeans will take forever to eliminate that problem, but others, um, if they're cooked too long, um, creates other problems. So it's just <clears throat> impossible to get the perfect um, time and temperature for every single bean in a batch. And therein lies some of the problem. Sounds like a lot of work. Yeah, but if you're fermenting the soybeans and making miso soup or, or inato or tempeh, less of a problem for sure. And so uh, if people do want to eat soy, what are some of the ways you would recommend they can incorporate it into their diet? Yeah, first um, I realized I didn't address what you asked about the raw soybeans. Uh, they're pretty much indigestible. They will cause major abdominal cramping and bloating and gas problems. 
And indeed, for years, the industry was concerned about the gas problem with uh, soybeans in general. They talked about two problems, the bitterness and the bad flavor, the beanie flavor. And the second issue they described as the flatulence factor. So it becomes extremely bad when the soybeans are undercooked. And there's all these stories from the 60s with uh, hippies boiling up, you know, stockpots full of beans and not cooking them enough. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> so in terms of the products that are, are healthy for us and which I eat, People are always surprised to hear that because I've got this reputation as the anti-soy lady. But I really do enjoy a good miso soup, um, a little tofu once in a while. Um, I've got no problem with that, say, if I go to a vegetarian potluck. And this is a once in a while thing for me. And a little tempeh and a stir fry, say. Uh, natto, I don't find it very often. I can't say I've come to to be an aficionado of that. It kind of smells bad to me. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty strong. What are some of the soy products or labels or things we need to watch out for if we're uh, trying to eliminate soy? Well, I always kind of joke with people that if it's got a label, don't buy it. Um, soy, soy ingredients are in 60% of processed and packaged foods and about 100% of fast foods. So people have come to me who are very allergic to soy, and these are people who are super sensitive. They react. Um, it's a huge problem for them. And some of those people are very frustrated. Uh, they are reading labels. They're going from item to item. And sometimes the manufacturers change the recipes and it just goes on. And I'm saying you skip the frustration and the anger and quit asking government agencies to somehow protect you from this problem. Take responsibility and prepare your own food from real ingredients. And you'll solve your problem. You can get to know your farmer. You can cook with your family. Uh, there's just so many benefits, health and community both. What about soy allergies? What would someone be feeling if they had uh, an allergy to soy and maybe how would they test for it or what could they do? Well, there's a couple kinds of allergies. And when we say soy is in the top eight allergies, soon to be in the top four, we're talking about the immediate reaction. Now, those are the people who have trouble breathing and they develop hives. They have a lot of problems. And they're the people who know about the problem. And I just want to insert a little something here that many children and adults who react to peanuts think soy is a safe alternative. But some people very suddenly out of the blue will start reacting to soy too and will get rushed to the hospital and there's been some deaths. So if you're somebody who's allergic to peanuts, do not think soy nuts and soy peanut butter are substitutes for you. Very dangerous. So the other kind of allergic reactions have to do with what would more correctly, I guess, call delayed reactions or food intolerances or sensitivities. And people define those things in a whole lot of different ways. But that would be the kind of thing where you don't notice an immediate effect, but say the next day you, you're feeling crankier or you're, you've got less energy or you've got black circles under your eyes or something. So uh, a lot of people have those 
And then, of course, besides the people who, who have known allergies, there's, there's all the people who have eaten a lot of soy in the past, and now they've got thyroid problems or infertility problems, and they're very conscientiously trying to remove soy from their diet. Okay, so it'd be uh, easier to test for if you have a known allergy or maybe not even easy to test for because you might not see it, the reactions for a couple days. Yeah, a food diary can be very helpful in terms of a lot of testing. Uh, there's some fairly sophisticated and very expensive food food um, allergy testing that we can do. I do that with some of my clients, but unfortunately, none of the tests are, are perfect. In some ways, if you're willing to do it, keeping a good food diary for, for several months at least can allow you to see the pattern, and the cost is about nothing. Yeah, it's an intense process. Yeah, and I recommend that people do it in a, in a fairly easy way, not to worry about the exact portion size or the gram weight or the calories or the, the recipe. Just put it down briefly to, to make it easy enough so you're going to be willing to continue. And likewise, on the other page, uh, you know, don't write uh, a book about the symptoms. You know, just keep it, you know, was cranky with my wife for no good reason or, or woke up with a headache or something like that. Keep it simple. I know one of the big uses for uh, soy is in vegetable oils or soybean oil. Is that still on the rise and in a lot of food products or has it gone down? Well, what we see in the supermarket, so whenever it's vegetable oil, it's usually close to 100% soy oil. But they keep it a little bit vague and flexible depending on what else is on sale and you know what they want to put into it that particular crop season. But most vegetable oils are soy oil. And we see that in most restaurants. It's, it's very commonly used. But if we go to places like Whole Foods, it's canola, canola, canola. And that's another problem, you know, genetically modified rapeseed oil. And that's got another set of problems. But after soy started to get a halo, even soy oil has crept into a lot of foods at, at Whole Foods, too. So you got a choice of two bad things, soybean oil and canola. And what do they, what do, they do? Are they just inflammatory? They're, they're definitely inflammatory, and even if they smell okay and seem completely bland, they've generally been processed so that the rancidity is covered up. There's actually a process called deodorization, so I like to joke that your oil wears a deodorant, but uh, it covers up some rancidity that's inevitable when you've got processes that involve light and heat and high temperature. Okay, and they were used... As vegetable oils because alternatives like coconut or avocado oil or olive oil are too expensive and those are cheaper or what was the reason they're so widely used? Yeah, that's that's exactly it because you can make a lot of money on cottonseed oil, corn oil, uh, canola oil, soy oil. There's no way you can make a really big profit on coconut oil or butter or avocado oil. Actually, I would recommend just eating avocados and not putting anything into a bottle. But, you know, the, the old-fashioned ones that you and I could make ourselves in our own kitchen, we could make butter, we can make avocado oil, we can make olive oil. But um, I suspect that um, most of us can't on our own without a huge million-dollar factory make soybean oil. I mean, how are you going to do it with those hard little beans? 
Yeah. So uh, to kind of wrap up the soy discussion, what would someone be feeling if they knew that going soy free was working? Like, do you have any before and after stories or did you have any experience when you eliminated soy in your diet? Like you got more energy or less joint pain or anything along those lines? I was blessed that I never completely fell for either the vegetarian myth, the vegan myth or the soy myth. So at various points, of course, I read that it was a wonderful substance, but I tried soy milk and it was really disgusting. <laughs> so I never got into the habit. I certainly had tofu at various points, so, you know, sometimes made with things like shiitake mushrooms, which I enjoyed and still do. But I never ate so much that I caused any problems for myself, and it was in a, in a very diet. So that would be a biggie. Now, in terms of clients I've worked with and people who call me with their soy stories, um, they've tended on the whole to get into trouble because they were doing too much of it. You know, maybe they were not able to tolerate dairy, and so they started drinking soy milk several times a day, you know, washing down their cereal with it and having it with lunch. And they're mistakenly thinking that if they can't have dairy, they need a dairy substitute or their bones are going to fall apart. Well, it doesn't work that way. So these are people who are doing too much soy and eliminating too many other good foods from their diet. Maybe they were eliminating eggs and meat. And a lot of those people were having vegetables, but um, a lot of soy. They were having it every day. So some of the effects they would have would, would usually be not the digestive ones so much because people who have digestive problems usually quit the soy pretty quickly because it's pretty immediate. You, you go out to dinner, you have soy, and you're, you've got stomach cramps most of the night. So that's, that's pretty clear cause and effect. So those people quit. They're the lucky ones. The ones who, who end up with the problems will often start showing thyroid problems. But it's not going to happen tomorrow. It's, you know, it's going to be a few weeks probably. And then people assume that because, say, they're middle-aged, their doctor's going to say, well, what do you expect? You're 45 now. So. And hypothyroidism is very common. So a lot of people don't associate it with, with their consumption of the soybean, which is supposed to be so healthy. And some of those people are doing it because they're trying to prevent cancer, trying to prevent uh, menopausal symptoms like miserable hot flashes. And the science on that actually is inconsistent and contradictory, but we do know that if, even if it does help with the hot flashes, what it's doing to your thyroid is pretty bad. So um, to wrap up then, I guess, what are some of your favorite health practices, Kayla? Do you do anything that... Uh, anything that would fall under hack or lifestyle or uh, diet or supplement or anything that you just absolutely love that you do on a daily or weekly basis? Well, I love a saying that um, one of my friends and mentors like to use, which is pleasure is a nutrient. And I think that we should be enjoying our food, and that makes a huge difference. So I would say I enjoy my food. I have a rich and varied diet. Um, fortunately, I don't have a lot of allergies, uh, but I do stay gluten-free. 
and minimize the non-gluten grains. So basically, I'm talking about a diet that includes a, a lot of different meats, poultry, fish, uh, and a lot of vegetables. So that would be somewhere on the paleo spectrum. And I also, as, as a hack, I'm not sure exactly if this is a hack, but the idea of nose-to-tail eating. And I think Mother Nature provided us with all parts of the animal for a reason. So a lot of people uh, make the mistake of doing too many steaks and chops. And that's an expensive choice, but it's also not ideal for health because Mother Nature wanted us to be eating the heart and the liver and the chicken gizzards and also to be making a nourishing broth from the carcass, the bones and the cartilage. So that actually is one of the secrets, broth, as the way to keep healthy joints, to um, heal your gut, to heal autoimmune problems. Uh, broth is just a miracle worker. Hmm. Yeah, I've been looking to get into experimenting with uh, bone broths and stuff. Do you have any recommendations of where to to start? I know my farmer's market has some, uh, I think they're cow bones that you can buy in the big bulk bags. Um, do you recommend just starting with those? Well, that would be a great option. Um, chicken feet, if you can get them. Um, if you're roasting a chicken, use the carcass, add some chicken feet and make up some broth or soup from that. Um, and my book, I, I co-authored the book Nourishing Broth, an old-fashioned remedy for the modern world. So that's got a lot of tips, good recipes, and I provided the the science on how that's going to heal heal much of what ails us. Okay. And then the whole soy story, um, you can get that on Amazon or anywhere else you'd like to, to send people to pick up the book? Yeah, um, you can get it at a great price on Amazon. And the same with the Nourishing Broth book. Um, Amazon's, you know, get fast and fast and cheap. Yeah, Amazon's great. Um, great, Dr. Daniel. Any other ask for the audience out there where they can find out more about you and your work? Sure. Uh, my website, drkaladaniel.com. That's my naughty nutritionist website. And that's where my mischief comes out to play, where I talk about things like the fats of life and how cholesterol is our friend with benefits and how to practice safe soy and what foods are truly well endowed and all sorts of other fun subjects. Good information in what I think is an entertaining way. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, appreciate your time. Thank you. Okay, that is it. Hope you got the lowdown on soy. Again, fascinating show. I always learn something walking away from these shows. And it's one of my favorite uh, parts of the week is, is interviewing guests and getting their expert opinions on it. Paleohacks.com launching tons of recipes over there, articles, blogs, but the archives are over there. And you can watch and find all our shows for the previous three years, and it's 100% free. So speaking of which, if you haven't heard last week's episode, I announced that Paleohacks show after three years, we are deciding to no longer produce it. We will have shows uh, up until October, and then that's pretty much it. And it has nothing to do with, you know, Paleo Hacks or me or we're just both going in different directions. So 
Um, be sure you follow Paleo Hacks. I don't know why you'd be listening if you didn't. And then I would love to stay in touch with you. I'm still around doing lots of different things. And if you want to stay in touch with me, you can go over to clarkdanger.com slash download. And that will give you the 11 questions, change your life ebook that you've heard me talking about for like a year. But that also puts you on the mailing list so I can send updates on on everything going on with content wise. Talk a lot about personal development, a lot about self-help, motivation, inspiration, all that stuff. Just I have another podcast as well. But anyway, that's over there at Clark Danger dash download. Um, Our archives will stay up for forever. Don't worry. And they will be free. So they're not going away. We got over 100 episodes, so if you wanted to still listen to one a week, you could re-listen and it would still take you two years, so we could be there for another two years. Um, all in all, I mean, fantastic opportunity. I love each and every one of these shows, so I really appreciate you guys listening, and especially if you're listening now to this very end, it means you're someone who uh, finishes things first off, um, but also that you've supported this show and myself for the past three years. All right. That's it. I will see you back here next week. Ooh, let me look. If you want to know Sarah Fergoso. Yes, that one was fun. I love that call. Be sure you tune in next week with Sarah Fergoso talking about her big shifts in life and, um, a lot more. I'll see you then.